this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. I would like to welcome you to an exciting new series I'm putting on each month in 2017. In the month of January, I'm going to go through 30 days to a better compliance program. So each day I will detail some part of a compliance program that you can utilize to help you improve to have a best practices compliance program for 2017. With the operationalization of compliance mandated by the Department of Justice in the form of their compliance counsel, Wei Chin, and incorporated into the FCPA pilot program announced by the Department of Justice in April 2016, it's more important than ever that you upgrade your compliance program and show how you've operationalized. In this series, I'm going to help you do that. I hope you will enjoy this series. I hope you will join me, and I look forward to this journey with you. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to Day 17 of 30 Days to a Better Compliance Program. Today I want to talk about uncovering shell companies, and here I'm indebted to my friend and colleague Ryan Hubbs for his article, Shell Games, in the 2014 issue of Fraud Magazine. There are three general areas you need to consider around shell companies. They are shell companies themselves, shelf companies, and the incorporators of both. In many instances, one shell company isn't enough. Fraudsters need a network. Dozens of shells, nominees, directors, addresses, and fake shareholders might be required to, com to conceal a scheme or criminal plot. Criminal conspirators will utilize shell incorporators to do the heavy lifting and help create a corporate web of disguise that can perplex and confuse the best of investigators. So what are shelf companies? These are companies that are formed but not used for a long period of time. This provides the facade of appearing to be legitimate and fooling a novice investigator or a basic due diligence mechanism because it appears they've existed longer than they actually have done so. An older shelf company could predate any specific area of concern, which would allow you to engage in business with it when you obviously should not. But the creation of both shell and shelf companies is only one step. You have to have directors and nominees. Fraudsters use nominee directors, sometimes other shell companies, to disguise true owners of entities while giving the appearance of legitimacy. Some nominees simply sell their names to fraudsters who use them on corporate documents. Others actually provide limited services for the shell companies, such as processing corporate records or signing company documents. But it's these nominee directors who stand as the linchpins to linking and disguising both criminal cartels and money laundering schemes. So you've got to uh, really be on the lookout for all of these. Related to these is the, uh, really rather to the names of the directors, and here you'll see multiple directors on multiple different types of shell companies, is international hotspots. Two cited by hubs include 103 Shanfeng Tong Plaza in Victoria Sully's, which has 160,000 hits associated with websites, companies, and individuals. Another address, P.O. Box 3444 Roadtown, Tortola, BVI, the British Virgin Islands, yields up 600,000 hits on a Google search. So these are some of the things that uh, you need to look out for, but the key 
is that this is all available in public source data. So what are some of the basic questions you should be looking at from your own corporate data and information? If the information doesn't make sense, uh, then you have a problem. You should look closely for entity in information mismatch. Address, phone, ship to, bank, sell, etc. Be very aware if an entity representative is associated with numerous other companies. Finally, you should review incoming and outgoing wire transfer documents to determine if a payment was made to an unrelated third party. But your own information is only the starting point. And here I want to lay out a five-step process for you to do background investigation into shell companies that is available to you in public source data. So one, web history. In this day and age, if a company does not have an active, up-and-running website, it should immediately raise a red flag. Fraudsters who want to establish shell companies must have websites to create the appearance of legitimate companies. But this requires old-fashioned gumshoe work. How can you tell if something's not right? While it may be as simple as the fact that it doesn't look right, it may require you to do cross-references and checking. Number two, public record searches to identify owners and tracking to known associates. There's a variety of public information, which is a component <coughs> of due diligence. Public records are an important source to link individuals and entities together. Next, number three, you should map the network. The most important task for tracing and tracking shell companies and contacts is to be able to document the linkage between the information uncovered. This amount of leads, dead ends, and information can be overwhelming single piece of information could go on so that a single piece of information could be unnoticed or, or unlinked. This means you need to map every piece of information no matter how small. An address or a phone number could be the key to uncovering a shell network. Search online various uh, co combinations of phone numbers and addresses all needs to be tied back together. You, there are mapping tools that are available to you and uh, you'd be well uh, suited to use one of those. Number four, who's this lookup for domain, domain ownership and IP addresses? That's H-W-H-O-I-S, HUSIS. While many shell companies have been vigilant about concealing public records uh, on the entities involved, the individual shell companies and shelf companies, the fraudsters aren't always as careful when it comes to setting up corresponding websites addresses. Using the HUSIS look lookup search engines, you can discover such information as domain ownership, IP addresses, the physical address of the website, the website administrators, their contact information, and finally, and most significantly, website creation details. So this can be an important cross-reference piece of information for you and one not to be uh, overlooked. Finally, number five, evaluating the online presence. This can be one of the most fruitful areas for investigators as shell incorporators have a hard time faking an active and robust online presence because these companies technically don't exist. Some of the keys indicia of online authenticity include a well-designed website and the presence of other online content, periodic and regular updates of information, and finally, 
contact email addresses which are linked to a legitimate website, not free email accounts. So, really, there are three questions that uh, I would ask you to consider regarding shell companies. Does it have an online presence? If it doesn't have an online presence, it's a huge red flag. Is the amount of online information available consistent with the goods or services that the entity says it's engaged in? And finally, is there too much free online posting of company of online information about the company. A final uh, double check to all of this is SWIFT codes. <clears throat> a shell company can be set up practically anywhere, but incorporators widely use particular countries and regions. Such advantages include a lack of government enforcement or specific laws protecting corporate secrecy. A good source of a high-risk country list is the um, banking SWIFT codes, which is a unique identifier that's associated with financial and non-financial institutions around the world. After you identify the SWIFT code, you might want to monitor any funds originating or being distributed to those banks and check and see if any of the customers or vendors have banking accounts associated with specific banks. So what are the three key takeaways for this? And I guess the first is that I would ask you to think about, have you even looked for shell companies? Do you have any mechanism to do so? After the Panama Papers came out, uh, many went to the uh, database and simply uh, said, well, the company I'm doing business with is not in the database, so I'm clear. That's only the start. Uh, you must go beyond that. Point number two, that this is really a time-intensive, not cost-intensive exercise. I went through the, uh, the five tools that Ryan Hubbs has uh, advocated using. Those are publicly available uh, information databases. That's work that you can do on, uh, on your own or someone in your firm can do. So use open source data. And then finally, you need to go back and review your previously approved third-party list because you probably did not do this type of search. You probably did not double-check certainly uh, to determine whether or not the employees, excuse me, the, uh, the companies were on the database list um, from the Panama Papers. And so having the ability to go back and look uh, is going to be critical going forward. I hope you have uh, enjoyed today's Day 17 of 30 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program on uncovering shell companies, and I hope you will join me for day 18. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.